Hey friends, I hope your holidays are going well and you're planning to kick ass in 2020. And I uh, just want to say I love you all and thank you so much for being so incredibly supportive of me and this podcast and I owe so much of it to you. So thank you so, so much. All right. So this is the second part of a two-part episode of an incredible story in person I came across. If you haven't already, please go back and listen to last week's episode so this episode will make the most sense. And before I continue with the interview, I need to offer a trigger warning that the story covers some very sensitive topics and should not be listened to around children. And now back to Matthew Hahn and the web of many different people's stories and lives that were changed the night he stole a safe from a Bay Area home. So that was the safe that would change your life. What was in the safe and what happened next? Well, there's a a little bit of a story to it, I guess. But uh, Mm -hmm. so I I brought the... I think it's kind of like not a little bit of a story. I feel like it's kind of a major story. It's a major story. It's a major story. I mean, I meant just like the opening opening of the safe itself. (laughs) We we drove six hours just to interview you about this story. So it's a major story. It's a major story. Major story. so yeah, you know, I, I went home with this guy. We went to my place, and uh, it was still the middle of the night, and so I didn't think it was. I mean, I don't know how to open a safe, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I'm sure there's safe crackers out there. I'm not one of them. Yeah. So like the only thing like I knew how to do was to like cut and gouge and like make well, it. That's a, probably I, who would know how to open a safe. Yeah, I don't know yeah. how to open a safe. So like, I think I think that's only in what, movies, like what, heist movies. They're like, oh, let me just like fake the yeah, right? Like, or like a little like it. bomb that you put on the door that pops yeah. it open or whatever. Like, no, I didn't have any of that. So like, I knew whatever I did, I was gonna be making a lot of noise. So I'm like, I can't do this in the middle of the night in my like quiet suburban neighborhood. They all know I'm dope fiend already, but there's no need to give them, you know, you know, more evidence. Let's yeah. put it that way. Um, or much less have him call the cops. Yeah. So, you know, I basically told the guy, I'm like, look, I'm going to wait till like eight in the morning to, uh, to cut this thing open. He's like, well, I'm not going to stick around for that. Like I got to get back to my girlfriend or whatever. I'm like, okay. Um, he's like, do you want to just, I'm like, do you want to come over at eight o'clock? He's like, maybe I'll come over at eight o'clock. Or if you just decide to open it, just let me know what's in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that there's like a kind of a camaraderie with stealing. Like, okay. So we, we check out what we got later. Like, <laughs> yeah, but like honestly, like I was a little sly here because like there's a part of me that when he said, "Yeah, I'll come back at 8," you know, or I mean, I might not come back at 8. There's a part of me that thought, "Well, if there's a bunch of money in it, like I don't have to tell him how much there was. <laughs> like I'm just being honest, mm-hmm. right?" Um, not to him. Like <laughs> yeah, yeah. none of this is honest. So let's, let's be clear. None of yeah. this is honest, but like I'm being honest to you. Like there's yeah. a part of me that thought like maybe I could keep a little extra for my trouble. Yeah. Um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you were the one breaking it open. Exactly. <laughs> uh so yeah, like uh, eight o'clock came around and I went at it with like a die grinder and like a giant crowbar that was like bigger than me and um, dropped it on the concrete a couple of times, you know, whatever to get things, you know, rolling around. And um, eventually I, I remember like I managed to pry open like a corner of the of the door, like big enough to like reach my arm in. And um, so like, I think the first thing I grabbed I mean, it was soft, you know, and I reached in and it was like soft and it was like kind of cold and it was squishy. And obviously my brain is like, this doesn't feel like a stack of money. Yeah. <laughs> like, so but I, you can't see what's in there because you've no, only gotten a certain part. Because I only so, opened up like, like a so, small Okay. So it's so like I'm a small hole. Okay. In, got yeah. it. I basically pried the corner of the door open. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I pull this thing out and it ends up it's a diaper. Um, and it's a, it's a soiled diaper at that, you know? And so I reach back in the safe and there's another soft thing and it's kind of heavy and I pull it out. It's another soiled diaper. And I, Mm -hmm. I don't remember how many of these things I pulled out. It might've been four or five. I don't know. Um, and I do remember pulling out like, like a pack or a handful of like regular, or I'm not gonna say regular unused diapers. Mm -hmm. And these are kids diapers, by the way, these aren't like depends or whatever. Um, I do remember opening up one of the diapers because I, they were heavy. So I thought like maybe there's like they're hiding jewelry or something breakable yeah. in the diaper. But that wasn't the case. They were like soiled diapers. Yeah. Um, so I'm like, this is kind of creepy. Um, yeah. And, yeah. But I didn't, I really didn't like make any, any make any like assumptions or leaps beyond that. I'm like, yeah. that's just weird, you know? Um, but I didn't think anything else beyond it. And so I kept kind of digging around in there and I pulled out some paperwork and like some photographs and like a, like a bank card. Um, the paperwork was actually adoption paperwork for the, whoever owned the safe. And, um, and then there was like a memory card 
and like I'm kind of into into photography today, but I was also into it back then. Like I recognize the memory card as like one of the ones that I used in like my own camera, and mm-hmm. I happen to have like back in the day we had these things called computer towers, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> that you hooked your terminal up yeah. to, you know, um, or your monitor. And so like I had. Well, oh, I'm like, old enough to remember those. So you remember those? Yeah. And, well, like I had like this like awesome computer tower probably rare at the time that mm-hmm. had like slots for all these different sd cards mm-hmm. and so like so like i put the i remember i put that memory card into the uh, the computer tower and you know the photographs and they don't really do it the same way anymore but back then you kind of whenever you something was getting read by the computer like a window would pop open and then everything that was on that thing would like kind of like stream across the screen as thumbnails mm-hmm. it's kind of like a cascade of like miniature versions of the photo okay um uh and maybe the computers still do that today but mine doesn't my mac doesn't do it that way yeah anyways like so i remember seeing all these little thumbnails and i saw like a couple that actually just made me think that like oh it was like somebody's homemade porn yeah um so you so the the, just like the first photo you saw was well they were teeny uh-huh. So like I saw them all at once. I understand. Right? Okay, I see what you're saying. They're, like they're, they're I now I see what you're saying. When they're small, I thought they were like when they're like a like a gallery. Like oh a big no no, one. I, I know like, what you're talking about. Yeah yeah, yeah yeah. No, it wasn't that stuff. Okay. it was like all like little teeny. Excuse me, all little teeny ones. Mm-hmm. And uh, so yeah, like I clicked on the first one I thought was like the homemade porn. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a part of me that's like, oh, you don't run into this every day, right? Yeah. Um, and I remember looking at the photo and there was just, uh, something wrong about it. And I don't need to describe like in crazy detail what it, what this photo was, but it was a close up. you know, it was a close up of the sex act that was happening. And I, I remember thinking there was just something weird about it, but I couldn't quite put my finger on it. Um, and so I, I clicked on the next one or I scrolled or however I did it. And the next photograph or a couple of photographs later, I don't remember, um, that's when it became obvious what I was looking at. And it was... Uh, well, it was a child uh, that, you know, I thought at the time maybe maybe three years old. Um, it was a girl. And uh, I found out later she was actually like 18 months old. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was a man in there and he was naked and it was clear that it was a, a sex act that's happening. And so what I was looking at was, you know, somebody... It wasn't just like child porn. It was like child rape. Yeah. Um, and that's what, there was a number of more photos like that yeah. on the, uh, on the memory card in addition to some other kind of like random photos. Yeah. Um, and so like, I knew I had to do something about it, but that's kind of easier said than done. Right. Like mm-hmm. when you're a, like a three striker. Yeah. Like, you were about ready to. Yeah. You like, you run into this at like a yard sale. You're like, you know, you, you buy a box of like camera equipment at a yard sale. You come home, you pop this and you're like, oh, holy shit. I let me call the cops. Let me tell you the yard sale yeah. I bought it at. Like you were faced with a, this was a little different, a decision. Yeah. So it wasn't going to be, I couldn't just walk into, I mean, I could have, but I didn't think it was a smart decision. It was to walk into the local police department and go like, I've been robbing all the rip, rich folks around here. Mm-hmm. Like, please forgive me. Cause I found this like, yeah. I didn't. I just didn't th- see that as a viable option, but I needed to do something. So, I called the guy. Uh, or did I page him? No, I called him. It wasn't pager. It wasn't oh, the page. person you. Yeah, you the guy that I stole yeah. stolen the safe with. And I said, "Hey, man, uh, you need to come over." He's like, "What was in there?" I'm like, "Yeah, just why don't you come over?" Yeah. <laughs> we got to talk about what's in the safe. And he showed up a couple hours later. And um, oh, and there was like a gun in there too. And so like I showed him the gun and you know, like the paperwork and this and that. And he's like, that's it. I'm like, that's all that was in there, man. Um, except for this. And so I put the memory card in the computer and, um, he looked at the photos and he's like, I don't want anything to do with these. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, well, but so we got to do something about it. Mm-hmm. And he's like, like I said, like, I don't, I don't want anything to do with it. And, um, I said something to him, something along the lines to him about, I don't want anything to do with it either. Yeah, like you're not <laughs> like, like wanting to, look, but you but can't, we have them now. Yeah, like, and you these can't. Are, these let are in the, our possession. Yeah, what are you just gonna know that this little? Like it's clearly he's the clearly the guy with it with the safe is trying to hide that he's doing this to this child. You have to let the parents know, or something has to happen. Yeah, and I feel like when he said, 
you know, like this is me hindsight reasoning, but mm-hmm. I feel like the first time he said, I don't want anything to do with it, it was actually more denial. It was mm-hmm. like, I want to pretend like this never happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, um, the second time he said it was in response to me saying, basically saying I wanted to turn them in. Yeah. And so like it was the first time he's like, oh my gosh, I don't. Yeah. And the second time was like, well, if you're going to do that, don't include me in the, yeah. the whole process. Um, well, I think probably too seeing something like that is one of the scariest things you could see. And you probably are just like he probably was in denial. Of, it was like, actually unbelievable. Yeah. That's there's a certain element that re- I almost want to say. I don't want to call it maybe shock because like it doesn't feel it didn't feel completely real. Even though I knew it was real, it didn't feel completely real because there's an element where it just didn't seem believable, but mm-hmm. it was obvious that it was real at the same time. Um, but yeah, like I said, well, fine. You don't have to have anything to do with it. Yeah. I'm going to turn them in. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure how I'm going to do it yet, but I'm going to do it. And, uh, you know, if it ever gets back to me, I won't say anything about you. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think he was completely happy with it, but I think he also saw there wasn't shit he was going to do about it. Yeah. Um, so I think I gave him the gun. I can't remember. Did I give him the gun? I might have just given him the gun. Yeah. But like, I was a felon. I was. I didn't need to get caught with a gun anyhow. Yeah. You know. Um. So that's what I did. Like he left later on in the day, and uh, I decided that I was basically gonna, you know, mail it in to the the police department. Mm-hmm. Um, not mail by like putting a stamp on it, but mail by leaving it in an envelope in a mailbox with like a note on the outside of the envelope that made it obvious that this isn't something you want to like take down to your post office and mail. This is something you need to deliver, like hand deliver to the police department. Mm-hmm. So I remember I put it in like a little change purse and uh, wrote a note on my computer, said something like, um, I stole this from such and such an address and uh, I don't want anything to do with it, but uh, please remove this animal from the street. And I put it in the envelope, and I think the envelope said, like, 911, deliver to police department. Mm-hmm. And I think I even wrote, like, graphic photos on it. Mm-hmm. Something like that to, like, really alert anybody who saw it in their mailbox. So at this moment, Matthew Hahn has risked life in prison in order to save this young girl. And due to Hahn's prior criminal record and the three strikes law in California, turning over this memory card to land in the hands of the proper authorities effectively provides evidence not only of a sexual assault on a child, but also of a burglary committed by Matthew Hahn. He knew he was sealing his fate inside of that envelope and leaving it in a mailbox to be found and turned into the police. Yet, he did it anyway. Seemingly a petty thief, his sense of duty to protect a young girl he had never met drove him to sacrifice his life of crime and drugs, jeopardize his freedom, and prove that his moral compass has a true north. Do you know who who yeah. eventually turned it into I the fa- police? I found out later that it was actually the male person. Oh, okay. Because I, I think if I remember right, I put the flag up. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I may put the flag up so like the person thought they were coming to pick up, mm-hmm. you know, like outgoing mail. But yeah, it was actually the, the male person got it and took it to the police that day. Um, so I remember I spent a couple of weeks, uh, maybe a week. I don't remember how long. Like there's like a local newspaper in that small town I was mm-hmm. in. Like, going down to Starbucks, like, looking mm-hmm. at the local newspaper, like, what's in the local, you know, like, reading the police blotter. Like, mm-hmm. I was already, like, always, like, reading the police blotter. I was kind of obsessed with, like, seeing, like, how many of my burglaries made the police <laughs> blotter. Like, it was just a thing. Yeah. Um. So, I was always, like, kind of, like, going and getting this, like, newspaper already. But, like, I was, like, really on it at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't remember whether it was a week or two later I read that uh, this guy, Robbie Akins, had been... Uh, arrested for for child molestation or child rape or whatever the charges were mm-hmm. um, and so I felt relief there because it said anonymous tip yada 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 I'm like oh they didn't like me up to it and so like mm-hmm. I kind of was able to let go of it at that point you know I just kind of went my merry way you know causing a ruckus in the neighborhood mm-hmm. you know and uh, so I was still using um, and I was continuing to burglarize and at some point um, I was arrested for that. Uh, I'd sold something on eBay. You were arrested for? For burglaries. For that one, though? No. Oh, okay. Just for burglaries. Oh, okay. Um, I thought you were saying, like, maybe you sold some other contents from the safe. No. no. I think I might have sold, like, the things that I stole from him the, the night, a couple yeah. nights earlier. Okay. I think I did sell those on eBay. But, um, 
It's a whole business. Yeah. You got I was, an eBay account. You're just... I was fencing a lot of stolen property back then on eBay, and it wasn't uh, quite like it. I don't think you could get away with it today. Back mm-hmm. then, nobody registered anything on ser- with their serial numbers. and Yeah. Um, or most people didn't have things registered with their serial yeah. numbers. But uh, clearly, some people did because that's how I ended up getting arrested. Okay. I had stolen something, sold it to someone in Ohio. It got traced back to me. Mm-hmm. And I get arrested in uh, April of 2005. So then how did they find out that you were the one that uh, stole the safe? So I had been on parole in this in this small town for a number of years kind of prior. Mm-hmm. And so I had a little bit of a, let's just say amicable relationship with the police department to the extent that they knew who I was. Mm-hmm. I knew the officers that arrested me. Mm-hmm. And so they had arrested me for this. And when I was taken down to the station... Um, there was basically a moment uh, where they said, we'd like to have an off-the-record conversation with you. Um, and so it was actually on my way from the substation in Las Gatas to the main jail that night mm-hmm. that um, I told them off the record that, um, you know, I don't know if I'd said I'd actually stolen the safe or if I just told them the contents of the safe. Mm-hmm. Either way, whatever I told them, like, they knew that I was the person who had who had um, basically found the photos and turned them in. Mm-hmm. But it was off the record. Yeah. And so like there were and, and they actually stuck to their they stuck to their word on that. You know, like I know sometimes we're gonna hear that like, you know, the cops will say, This is off the record and then they use it as something against you. It ended up not making its way to the official record. Yeah. So I think I read it in the grand jury testimony and I don't remember completely how I got that. I think somebody sent it to me while I was in the county jail. But I read later that um when we had entered the property that he had uh left the cottage to go to the house to i don't know get a drink or something out of the kitchen mm-hmm. and that while he was in the kitchen he had heard voices outside oh, okay. so he had actually heard us there um and there was something about that that was kind of like creepy i'm like so like creepy. i remember like the weird intuitive moment i remember going like maybe there's like so well, i think your intu- intuition like, like, was right yeah. at least in this instance again but i also think your intuition i i mean i believe in i mean hopefully the uh all things work out to benefit someone else. So to to benefit this girl and this family to stop this, get some sort of closure. Like maybe you were intuitive of like I had. I mean, you didn't know what you were going to find in there. But I did it's, not. Yeah. You know, like I am not much of a god man. Um, yeah. But I can say that there are elements of this that are. Serendipitous miraculous, miraculous. Yeah, serendipitous, and, whatever you want to call it. And it also changed. It also changed your life. Yeah, you know, it changed a number of people's lives. Yeah. Um, so fairly dramatically. So yeah, like I, he knew it was stolen. He knew right away it was stolen because mm-hmm. he probably watched us. Yeah. Steal it. If I remember, I even said that he thought the the truck sounded like a Toyota, mm-hmm. which he was right. Yeah. <laughs> so like he knew the sound of a Toyota, which I thought yeah. was interesting. Anyways. Um, and so he ended up calling that, calling the police and reporting the burglary. Mm-hmm. So it was actually a perfect setup for the police a number of days later because they just called him and said, hey, we may have found some of the uh, re- recovered mm. or whatever it was from the burglary. Let's talk to you about it. Come on, come on down to the station and claim it. Something like that. So he just like goes down there. They're going to talk to him about the burglary, and they I guess they chit-chatted him for a few minutes. He probably all. thinks that the safe wasn't broken into, just like... Maybe. Yeah. God, could you imagine being him going down to the police station to recover the... Yeah. Oof. Either way, like... Uh, but what they did is they, they did. They took one of the photographs from the memory card, blew up his face, mm-hmm. and just, like, set it on the counter in front of him. Um, and apparently he... Uh, mostly confessed Mm -hmm. at that point. Robbie Aitkins was an employee of the father's business whose daughter he molested. He had become close with the family, babysat their firstborn girl, and was named her godfather. The family trusted him, but he was a wolf in sheep's clothing. Now, this isn't to say that we couldn't trace a life of trauma back to Robbie and perhaps what caused him to be a monster to a little girl, but it wasn't a one-off occurrence. When police investigated, they found the little girl's dress stuffed in a bag in a motorcycle helmet And then a computer forensic search was done on Robbie's computer and found thousands of pornographic images, including more than 100 that were identified as illegal child pornography. And so, like, it was basically something that even though I was fighting my case, there's no official documentation saying that I was in any way related to um, the Aitken's case. Mm -hmm. So I was facing, as we discussed earlier with the three strikes law, 
Um, at that, my, at my first arrest, or excuse me, when I was first arrested there, mm -hmm. I was only charged with four counts of possession of stolen property. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that would have been four felonies. And so that would have been technically facing a hundred years to life. Jeez. Um, I knew I was going to be a three strike candidate, mm -hmm. obviously, <laughs> but that doesn't mean the computer system was going to know that. Yeah. Um, I figured that that wouldn't happen until I went to court the first time. Mm -hmm. So what I did is... Um, I asked family to bail me out right away. So I bailed out of jail uh, that night on a three strikes case, I think $10,000 bail or something. Mm -hmm. um, and so I had two weeks to think about it because my court date wasn't for, I think, let's see, that would have been April 8th, April 9th. My court date wasn't until April 22nd. So yeah, two weeks until I was going to have to show up in court and, you know, face life in prison. So that was an interesting couple of weeks. Life, like, yeah, that's... That's a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I drank a lot during those two weeks. And, uh, you know, I actually never did meth again after April 8th mm -hmm. um, there in 2005. So I got arrested that night and, like, I stopped doing meth. Um, that might have been mostly because, uh, not because I didn't want to, but because um, I was getting tailed everywhere by the cops. Mm -hmm. It's like they knew I'd bailed out. So, like, the local police department, they'd follow me down the street, like, in their car. I'd go into 7-Eleven. They'd park into the 7-Eleven parking lot. They'd follow me. They'd watch me get a Slurpee. It was, like, kind of intense. So I was I was just, like, drinking and trying to decide if I was going to run. That's yeah. basically what it came down to. Um, because being out on $10,000 bail or whatever it was, it might have been twenty, but either way, significantly low bail mm -hmm. compared to what the amount of time I was facing, it made the idea of running pretty attractive mm -hmm. you know like it's not like anybody was going to lose their their retirement or something yeah, uh, yeah based upon me running and so like I, I seriously considered it but um it it just didn't end up it's hard to describe I guess I could tell the story like that morning like so like it was I think it was a Friday morning April 22nd um you know I still kind of had like some skepticism about whether I would go to court or not and uh but there's just something in me that was just, I was a little tired, mm -hmm. you know, um, being a dope fiend's hard work. And I, <laughs> and I know it, it, it sounds kind of funny, but like what I mean is like it's taxing. It's emotionally yeah. taxing, running, lying, stealing, mm -hmm. lying to your family, hiding, like just all the shame, um, which was really kind of coming to the fore because I wasn't getting, getting high on the meth anymore, which is, of course, why I was drinking so much. But there's just really no way of hiding it. And um I remember I got high one last time. It was the, the morning going to court. I was just pot, but it was it did the trick. You know, I just, I smoked a bowl. I swept the driveway and I went to court. And, uh, you know, like I, I didn't bring anything with me. Like mm -hmm. I knew they were going to take me in, you know. So like I didn't wear any jewelry. I didn't wear a belt. I didn't bring a wallet. Mm -hmm. I brought cash with me. And so like I went to the courtroom and they said, Your Honor, he, this guy is a three-strike candidate. He's currently facing 100 years to life. This is what the district attorney said. He's mm -hmm. currently facing 100 years to life. We expect more charges to come. Um, clearly, he is a flight risk. So we, we want to remand him into custody. And I just stuck my hands out, and they slapped cuffs on me. There's really no question about it. Um, and I remember they put me in the jury box, and then a bailiff would come over. And he basically, before they take me through the door to the jail portion of the courthouse and then kind of offer booking, they have to kind of register all your property, your personal property. And he's mm -hmm. like, all right, like shoes, check, you know, pants, check, collared shirt, check, belt. I'm like, nope. He's like, jewelry. I'm like, nope. He's like, wallet. I'm like, nope. <laughs> he's like, you have anything on you? I'm like, I have cash. He's like, how much money? I'm like, $300. And if I remember right, $300 was the maximum you could bring in without having to have it turned into a check and become part of your property. Like I mm -hmm. brought like the maximum cash I could bring in to have on my books in mm -hmm. the jail. And I remember when I said the $300 cash, the, the sheriff just looked at me and he's like, like, you knew this was going to happen. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. He's like, why did you come here? And I looked at him and I said kind of what I, what I said earlier. I said, I just, I just don't have it in me anymore. I just don't have it in me to fight. Yeah. Um, and so like in some ways, like I feel like there is like, a, like a, an actual in metaphorical or spiritual or emotional like surrender mm -hmm. that happened that day for me because it was like I there's a part of me that saw I suppose like going to jail as my way out mm -hmm. you know as your way out of uh, addiction and, yeah, yeah. I, I, there's there's some part of me that just said this is uh, this is a way I can end it yeah 
and there is some part of this story though too where uh they kind of rallied around you uh in terms of the Aikens case yeah because yeah. that was eventually yeah that came later you know so that was uh yeah i got remanded into custody there in april of 2005 and um over the course of the next few months you know they brought uh, whatever it was like 12 more felony charges against me. Mm-hmm. I think one of them was a first-degree burglary, if we're mm-hmm. going back to, like, my explanation of burglaries. One of them was a residential burglary. All the rest were, like, I think second-degree burglary, possession of stolen property, possession of methamphetamine, which was ironic because it was, like, literally... It was, like, a, just a baggie, an empty baggie, but they were still giving me possession for it. And, of course, each one of those carried a penalty of 25 to life. Mm-hmm. So, you know, tally all that up, and you get uh, a potential for 400 to life. Mm-hmm. I mean, not that that's a whole lot different than a hundred to life. Yeah, or, I mean, you're gonna, you're, you know, yeah, you're you're in there anyways. Life is life is life. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I suppose twenty five to life is different because you know, like I was still young at the time, so like you got a shot at fifty type thing. But uh, when you start getting into the hundreds, it's like, yeah. which century? It doesn't really matter anymore. Um, so yeah, I mean, I was just, I mean, that was a tough place to be, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like I was suicidal at the time. It was, it was a really rough period of my life. They sometimes describe it as, uh, you know, like when people say they have a, like a near death experience, their life flashes before their eyes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I didn't like have it flash because it was long and drawn and like slow and like torturous, but Mm -hmm. like, it was more like laying in my cell, cell, like staring at the ceiling, just reviewing everything I'd ever done in my life up to that point. Mm -hmm. And like, like, this is where the story ends. Mm -hmm. Like that's kind of, it was like, so it was almost like the near death experience, just very slow. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what it was like for, I don't know, maybe, uh, probably almost, almost a year, maybe a little bit more than a year, because it wasn't until early on in 2006 that, um, the district attorney that was prosecuting Robbie Aikens. Mm -hmm. Now, mind you, like at this point, like Robbie Aikens is facing, I think 25 to life because the, uh, the photographs were severe enough that they're not, uh, there wasn't any question about how bad it was. And so, mm-hmm. like, he was facing a life sentence on a first offense. Um, so that was uh, pretty bad. But then, of course, I was facing, like, 400. So, like, I was facing 16 times the amount of time as him. This is how, you know, mandatory minimum sentences work. Mm-hmm. This is how uh, the, the criminal justice system works when you give people um, time for prior offenses. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny. I just got a letter the other day from a friend of mine named Ryan that I did time with. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he, he got out of prison and he kind of was a similar story to me in the sense that like you know he's just dope fiend that goes to stealing once he starts mm-hmm. um getting high and uh man I just got a letter from him and he just got 23 years for burglary you know and I, I was like he sent me his court paperwork so I could see how it worked and he got he basically got like like 14 of those years is just for having priors itself Mm-hmm. So like the burglary itself carried like six or eight or whatever the heck it was, mm-hmm. but then they gave him like five for this prior, five for that prior, yeah. two for this prior, and two for it's like so they stacked on like fourteen years, not for crimes he committed, just for having the prior record. It's it's kind of remarkable if you think about it. Yeah, but that's the way it works. And um, and ironically, like uh, and this would come a few months later, but like my lawyer ended up on the Glenn Beck show. Uh-huh. I, I, I don't I think Glenn Beck was like on Fox News at the time. Yeah, this is back in the day. And so, like, my lawyer ended up on, like, a show with Glenn Beck, like, discussing my case. And even Glenn Beck, like, the guy's a little crazy, right? Like, mm-hmm. we all know that. But, like, this might be the only time you ever said anything, like, I agree with. Now, yeah. I didn't get to see the show. I just got to read the transcript because I don't exactly have Fox News in my cell, right? I only found out about it later. But but Glenn Beck even said, like, you know, Han should be allowed to burglarize something, like, for every day the rest of his life and still do less time than Aiken. Yeah. And it's, like, the only thing he ever said that. I agreed with. Yeah. Although I don't know if I actually agree with like stealing every day the rest of my life and still doing less no. time. But I think the point I, is I that think, there's... I think, I think the effect that it has on other humans is far different than it... People can get over something being stolen from them. I'm not sure that someone can really get over like a, a child, like their innocence stolen from them. Yeah, I, so, I, I get that. And it's like, and I, think, I don't... I think that's kind of the point. And I don't want to downplay what I did, though, mm-hmm. you know, because I, 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 I don't think you are. I, I mean, I hurt, you know, actually, I hurt countless people. Like yeah. I, 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 I almost anonymous people to the extent that I can't put a face to the people I've hurt. I've hurt enough people. I've stolen from enough people. I don't know where I stole from. 
you know, because I'd had that off the record conversation with uh, the police on the way to the jail, mm -hmm. like whoever in the department or the district attorney's office, they knew I was associated with the the burglary, mm -hmm. though nothing official, right? Mm -hmm. And so what ended up happening is that the district attorney and my lawyer came to visit sometime, the district attorney that was prosecuting Robbie Aikens came to visit me sometime in early 2006. So like maybe a little bit less than a year after getting arrested. And um, basically what was happening was that because the evidence had been stolen from Aitken's house and there was no like chain of possession between where it was stolen from and the police department, mm -hmm. there was no way of ruling out that the police hadn't actually gotten an anonymous tip and then engaged in the crime themselves, right? So like there's this like there's this concept called like I think it's called fruit of the poison tree. Uh -huh. So uh, it's related to constitutional law. So basically, a a police officer can't engage in an illegal act to get evidence. Oh, okay. Right. I see and what if you're they saying. do engage Got in an illegal act in order to obtain evidence, then everything that follows from that illegal act Got can't it. be admissible in court. Got right. It. So the argument I think that was being made by the Aitkins defense team was that we know a crime got committed. Mm -hmm. And poof, it ends up with the police, like fruit of the poison tree. Got like we, we we know he called the burglary and he called it in that morning. This isn't like after the fact, like saying it was stolen. We know it was stolen, you know? Yeah, yeah. So like basically what uh, the district attorney wanted was somebody to establish the chain of possession. And there was only one person that could do that. that um, and that was me. Now, my lawyer told me that I shouldn't go on the record saying, quote, I steal, I stole the safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he was being a good lawyer by saying that because um, if I said I stole the safe, then it was going to be impossible for me really to present a defense in my own trial mm -hmm. uh, because my defense ultimately was, uh, if, if there is one, was I was only caught with stolen property. Mm -hmm. I never got caught stealing. So my defense was going to be like, why am I charged with burglary? I should just be charged with possession of stolen property and hope that a jury doesn't give me 25 to life for that. I see, uh -huh. That's like ultimately what, what I was hoping for. So if I actually went on the record, it could get used in my court. If I, I, I can't say like, I wasn't actually stealing anything if there's a recording of me saying I stole a safe. Yeah. Um, so obviously he told me not to say that. But when push came to shove, you know, like I, I sat down and uh, the district attorney, you know, it's funny because like you think things work a certain way and mm -hmm. she, I think she knew she was used to people thinking things work, work a certain way like they do on TV because mm -hmm. she began the whole conversation with this isn't like law and order. Like I'm not, I don't have the ability to give you a deal. Like mm -hmm. I can't like offer you leniency. I can't offer you anything, mm -hmm. you know, um, this is your own free will. Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you questions. You can answer them. It's up to you, you know, um, now, I'm sure there are backroom deals that happen in places, but it sure is. I guess it wasn't happening for me. Yeah. At least not then. And um, so I did avoid saying the words, I stole the safe. Mm -hmm. But at some point, like, I think she got a little frustrated with my avoiding saying I stole the safe. And she kind of like turned the tape off and said, um, yeah, we need to establish chain of possession. We need you to. Basically, mm -hmm. we, we need nobody else to have possessed this between when it got stolen and when the police got it. Mm -hmm. And I knew what she was saying. So when, it, when she turned it back on, she basically said, did anybody else ever possess the safe? And how were you feeling in that moment of like, were you like, shit, if I say this? I think it was my second uh, surrender. Yeah. Like the first surrender was like going to the court that morning. The second mm -hmm. surrender for me was like, I'm just going to say that nobody else ever had the safe except me. Mm-hmm. And there was a certain element of relief because that's what I said. I said, nobody. I, I'm the only person that had to say. And there was a certain sense of relief, I remember, that mm -hmm. washed over me over me because, like, I wasn't in control anymore. Mm -hmm. Not that I was in control before. But, like, I can <laughs> convince. I can, like, there's, like, yeah. really, you know, like, I can be deluded enough to think that I'm in control yeah, somehow. Yeah, yeah. Well, after that, like, it was, there was no doubt. Like, I was no longer in the driver's seat. This yeah. was up to juries and judges and eventually public mm -hmm. opinion is yeah. like really what it came down to and 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 so the the part where yeah like the, the the public basically or or the newspaper sort of rallied around you to reduce the sentence right yeah well the newspaper didn't actually rally they just got the people rallied yeah, yeah <laughs> right I, like I guess they, that's what i mean yeah. they they certainly presented the story in a very like good light right because mm -hmm. um, that could have gone any number of ways we all know yeah. how the media can be like they decided not to um, portray me as 
as prolific as maybe I was, but they portrayed me in a good light. And ultimately what ended up happening is there's people that I didn't know that, you know, started like a petition and there were people who were actually, you know, calling the district attorney's office and saying like, you need to give this guy leniency. Mm -hmm. And then there was a couple of more articles that came out in like editorial sections. Mm -hmm. Like I said, stuff was happening on Glenn Beck and there was like, it got out a little bit. Mm -hmm. There was actually one point where like I was listening to a radio show in my cell, Mm -hmm. in my cell block listening to them have a conversation about me about whether i should get life in prison and then they were taking callers oh my god oh that is so surreal so like they're taking callers on this show and i'm like listening to this now mind you everybody in the whole cell block is listening to the same damn thing right so like here's a cell block there's like 40 (laughs) cells in this little cell block you're like "Uh, and everybody's listening is everyone looking at me right now? like you know like we got these little (laughs) headphones you know like everybody's listening so it's funny because like everybody's alone and listening to the same thing simultaneously and it's so funny because they're like, you know, like, we're going to take callers now. And so, like, he starts taking callers, and one person called in and said, give him life, but give him an extra pillow, you know? Like, and someone's like, extra conjugal visits, you know? Like, this is the type of shit they were saying, you know? Oh, my um, God. Nobody called in to say, like, you know, like, give the guy a break, um, other than the pillow person. Yeah. And, uh, but then, like, one person called in, and she said, you could tell she was like in traffic or something. You could hear yeah. like cars going by. I remember hearing it like, and she said, you know, like I actually, when I called, I like had sympathy for him. But now that I think about it, and then she goes, Han should be gone. And the next thing you know, like out through the cell block, you're hearing this yell, like Han should be gone. Like everybody, do, do they everybody, know? But do they know that you're in the? Like, do they know? Yes, that's they you? all know it's me. Oh my god! Because it's, we weird... get the newspaper delivered to us, so they're seeing me on the front page of the newspaper. So like the cell block is like Han should be gone. You know, like I go and I get. So this happens for like weeks. I go and I get my chow. Like I pick up my tray. Han should be gone. Cop walks by the cell. Han should be gone. Like everybody's fucking saying it. Like everywhere. Han should be gone. It was totally playful. It wasn't. No, actually, they were just joking. Okay, yeah, 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 it was yeah, totally yeah. playful, but it was like I, it, it took a few weeks for that one to die down, you know. But I just can't. Uh, I just can't even imagine. Like, like I, I, I just feel very vulnerable about. It. Like, I can't even imagine. Like, you're sitting in a freaking cell block. You're hearing yourself on the radio, and everyone's <laughs> like reacting to it. Like, yeah, it was kind of, it was kind of surreal. I'd um, have a panic attack. I would probably curl up in a ball and have a panic attack. Well, there was a certain <laughs> element to fear. There was definitely a certain element of fear associated with it because, um, you know, I know we haven't talked about like my prison experience that much today, but yeah, we can go um, into the, yeah, the, you know, there's like a prison politic, you know, mm-hmm. about, um, you know, snitching or sex offender and all this mm-hmm. other stuff. And people who aren't familiar, like if someone goes to prison and they're in the general population, you know, like there's basically only a handful of things that you don't want to be. And one of those is a snitch and one of those is a sex offender. And there's a few other things, but mm-hmm. um, like I wasn't a sex offender, but I was worried that someone would get still be bent out of shape about me having turned the guy in. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so like, I started to like kind of get this fear about like, Oh shit. Like when I go to prison, like um, are people going to try to hold me accountable for um, having done the right thing but still having told yeah it's almost like a double-edged sword of like it's probably like the sex offenders in prison don't like you because you turn and then also you are labeled as a snitch but i would never have been in the prison with the sex offenders because they're under protective custody okay, okay, okay. but that's actually interesting you mentioned that because i got visited excuse me i got visited shortly after the article came out in the newspaper by mm-hmm. like the classification staff in the county jail. Mm-hmm. And I remember they pulled me out of my cell. It was like three in the morning. Like they, they worked weird hours or whatever. But he brought me in. And he says, "So, like, I'm with classification, and I want to know if you would like to go to protective custody." I'm like, "Why? Why do I need to go to protective custody?" He's like, "Well, you know, you're getting media attention, and mm-hmm. you know, like your your attention is specifically for turning in another person." Um, and, uh, you know, I need to warn you that you should probably fear for your life, you know, and that I should provide you, I have to offer protective custody to you. And, um, of course that wasn't in the plan. So I yeah. said, you know, like it, there's a certain element of like, of course I'm scared, right? Yeah. I'm human. I'm scared. But at the same time, there's bravado and there's jail. And I, I remember I said to him, I said, if they got a problem, they can come talk to me about it. Wow. Um, because I, there's a. There's a part of me that like felt 
like this was the thing that was going to that was it was saving me mm-hmm. so and it's gonna sound a little crazy but i felt like like if this was the thing that was going to save me it wasn't the thing that was going to get me killed mm-hmm. like there's yeah, just I something really, in my head that was like i think you're also kind of believing in a higher power like i, I know i don't know like, what you're like, I know, but like there's something that was happening that was just like there was a trajectory here that made Mm -hmm. me feel like, yeah, I just don't think that's how it's going to go down, you know, but if it does, it does, you know, like, but like I had like this great sense of resignation and letting go though at that period of time in my life. And so like all that went down, the protective custody, the media attention, and eventually Mm -hmm. they uh, decided to offer me a plea bargain, which I took. So um, I ended up pleading guilty to 14 years four months and part of it was for stealing that safe too no i was never actually charged with that they oh they gave you some sort of leniency for that right or no they just never charged me with it oh, okay but like the only evidence they would have had was me admitting to you know being involved with it because i don't think they ever caught me with any stolen property yeah. from the burglary anyhow um they had plenty of other evidence yeah okay it's like <laughs> you're they, like I've they doing, didn't need I've that i've been doing this for years <laughs> well it's not that it's just uh Look, they don't actually care what they convict you of usually. Yeah. Um, in fact, like they had me charged with the possession of methamphetamine. Remember I told you about mm-hmm. that? Well, in California, if you're convicted of a felony drug charge, you have to actually, when you get out, register mm-hmm. as a drug offender. I don't know if you know that. It's like a, you're almost like a sex offender, but you have to register as a drug offender. So if I like live in point A and I move to city B, then I have, to go, I have to go to that police department and tell them, I'm a dope fiend and I live here. And then if I move to city and the city next over, then I have to go but to that police department. But it's not like a list that the public can like look at. Not up. that sort of, but it's yeah, like yeah. registration. I just didn't like the idea of it. So I remember yeah. when I took the plea bargain, I got to court. They're like, they were reading off the charges and they got the meth one. Mm-hmm. I looked at my lawyer and said, I ain't pleading that one. <laughs> and he's like, why? Why aren't you pleading to that one? I said, well, I don't want to register as a drug offender. Yeah. Plus, of all the charges, it's the one bullshit one. Yeah. Like, he's like, let me talk to him. They said, well, they want they, they need to give you they want to give you 16 months for something. I said, tell him to give me another burglary charge. Yeah. Like, he leaves and he comes back. He's like, all right, secondary burglary, all right. I'm like, yeah, secondary yeah. burglary is fine. So they just you, slapped it. So they took off the meth charge, slapped on a burg charge, and I, so I just took another burg charge. You didn't charge. want to spend the rest of your life having to be. I like, don't know if it's the rest hey, of your life for ten up? years gotta, or something yeah, like that. But I just did. It just seemed like yeah. Just give me a burglary charge. I already got him on there. Give me another one. Well, <laughs> most what, people don't think that way, but like that's that's the position I was in at the time. So yeah. we just substituted charges. But that's what happens in the criminal justice system. Well, wh- so what is uh. Wh- what happened later? Like, so you got sober in prison. You yeah. The last time I got, I, I want to hear was... about your life from there to to now. Okay. Because it is. I mean, I'm sitting in your beautiful home and and you know, a nice area. Like you, you're it's doing all right it. Here. It's okay. It's We're very right. nice. I live in a freaking apartment. I anytime I'm in a home, I'm like, oh, what is a home like? <laughs> it's it's very nice. <laughs> if you yeah. knew the problems we had with the place we live in right now, you wouldn't be saying that. Well, so, but anyways, like that's a that's a completely so, different it, conversation. And but you but you're sober. You're like so. It, no, life is great. Like yeah. like, uh, but it's been well, almost 15 years since the period, or 14 years since the period of time we're talking mm-hmm. about. So, um, by the way, Aiken ended up getting 30 years. And is he still in? He's still in. All right. I Though I think I looked him up recently, and I think he's technically like. Believe it or not, eligible for parole. And I don't like, think I really like that, but okay. Did they do they do anything in prison to like help reform the? Uh, I have no idea. I've never been uh, on one yeah, of those no. yards. I don't want to be on one of those yards. Yeah, like one would hope that there's uh, there's rehabilitation programs there. Yeah. Um, but like I said, uh, I wouldn't be confident in it. Um, yeah. <laughs> like, I would hope something like that's there. But either way, he got thirty years, and the only reason he got thirty. Um, in not life because that was a plea bargain. Mm-hmm. They gave him a plea bargain, but the reason he got thirty is because I guess the grand jury thing was so traumatic for the family that the district attorney they, they basically asked the district attorney not they didn't want to go through a trial mm-hmm. like it was it was too much, and so uh, they said if you can offer him like a really long sentence, then mm-hmm. we're okay with that. And so they offered him thirty, and he took it. Okay, so you're in prison now for how long? How long? Did- so my sentence was fourteen years, mm-hmm. uh, four months, and. Um, I was going to have to do basically seven of that. Mm-hmm. And that's what I ended up serving was about seven. Um, you know, I, so I, obviously I'd been up in the county jail up till that point. But after taking the plea bargain and getting sentenced, you know, like I was shipped off to prison. That was kind of an interesting moment unto itself because like even though I wasn't going to tell anybody when I got to prison 
you know, about my story because yeah. I was kind of worried about how that would get taken. Um, like when I was like called to go to prison, mm-hmm. like the entire like cell block that I was in, they were all out for program playing cards and stuff like that. I shit you not, it's kind of like weird. Like they like all stood up and like clapped on my way out. It was actually like a really weird experience. Like one of like the, the kind of like the shot callers for one of the gangs and they were actually, it was kind of sweet. Like it was weird, but it was sweet. He like gave me a card with like a, like a, like a, like a weird Catholic painting of like a guardian angel on it. That's and he so said, sweet. This is, this is from the homies to you. Like that's, it was kind of like this weird, it was like a weird like send off because like once I got on that bus, I wasn't telling anybody what had happened, but, um, I don't know. That kind of felt good when that and happened. And that was from going to... From... from county jail to prison. Okay, got it, got it. So it was kind of weird, like, having people, like, honor you on your way out. Yeah. <laughs> it was kind of a strange experience. And I'm sure the guards were like, why are they all clapping for this guy? That's very... It's it's strange because... Yeah, yeah but it's also kind of a nice uh, look into humanity, too, that we're like, this guy... Like, the, the gang member guy that you're talking about. Like, we're... We could all be like... Oh, he's probably just fucking fucked up, crazy, whatever. It's like everyone has like a like a soul, and for the most part, and well, that I was think in this case, he... a lot of them have kids. It's yeah, probably really what it comes down to. Yeah, identification there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I was shipped off to prison, and I, you know, I did a, a brief, you know, classification period, um, at Tracy, which is a prison in Tracy. Mm-hmm. It's actually called D- the prison's called DVI, but it's in Tracy, mm-hmm. um, and that's just basically where they figure out based upon who you are, how long you've done, where they need to send you. Yeah. And so then I ended up at Old Folsom. Um, so that's... Like the Folsom Folsom prison? Like Folsom Folsom, like where Johnny Cash did yeah. uh, the famous album. Mm-hmm. I, think he, I think he, I don't know if he recorded there twice, but he certainly played there twice. Yeah. Um, and in fact, like I used to eat chow in the same chow hall every morning that Johnny Cash like did his concert. And... Why do they call it chow? Just because it's just eating? I don't know. Okay, like, just curious. <laughs> chow like the word for food yeah or just eat food. it might be a military thing maybe it comes from maybe that maybe that is i don't what know it is. like because they call it chow time yeah chow hall that, that might be what it is eating yeah. chow. <laughs> i think it is a military term <laughs> you know you're not the first person to give me shit for using that term because sometimes like i'll just say like it's chow time and i'm just talking about dinner you know yeah. what i mean so but you know you take man out of prison you can't take all the prison out so, of man exactly like you have different terms for things yeah now i do yeah i do uh like feeding the warden what does that means taking a dump what feeding the warden that's i mean i thought you you thought you want to know something no yeah yeah no important terminology right that's that no i'd love this is cool inside scoop yeah yeah (laughs) so anyways like yeah i was at Folsom for a couple of years i'm also hold on i'm also like picturing (laughs) you like in like just a random setting with people being like i gotta go feed the warden they're like what the is he talking about like outside well of you do now. often like when you live in a cell you usually got to tell your celly when you're getting ready to drop a deuce yeah but i'm i mean think about I'm it i'm right? saying like, outside of prison oh yeah you outside ever of prison. use that that phrase people would be like what is the fuck is he talking about no but sometimes i'll use it just because i know nobody knows what the hell i'm yeah. talking about i said i gotta go feed the warden and be like <laughs> they're like what? all right okay yeah well and i walk <laughs> off they're like, like they're like, we're all uncomfortable now. <laughs> Sometimes we don't I'll understand. say, it. feed yeah. the warden. It's terrible. <laughs> totally disgusting. But yeah, no, like when you live in a cell with somebody, mm-hmm. like sometimes you're like, let's say you're selling. I mean, think about it. your cell. It's like. So uh, your toilet is in the. Yeah, like, okay. So like, I nobody can see me demonstrate this, but I can tell them, like, the cell wide is if I hold my elbow out uh-huh. and then my left hand extended. How, like, how many feet would you say that is? That's how wide a cell is. Greg. So it's like, whatever, three and a half, four feet. Four feet, five feet? Five five feet that's how wide and there's two people living in there right and then they're like maybe nine or ten feet long two bunks there's a toilet there's shelving and all that other stuff in there so like let's say your celly is on the lower bunk right he's sitting on his lower bunk and he's eating dinner chow but he's eating dinner right yeah. the toilet's right here oh my god right so like if i have to like go to the bathroom there's got to be an announcement hey boy you know i i gotta i gotta drop one no, like, can you wait till I stop eating or like whatever you know like no. no it's an emergency so like he needs to like get down to the end of the cell or usually like put a cover on his food because like just what I, he'll do and he'll wait till I finish my thing because got to drop the sheet so that he doesn't have to watch me do it I I, mean, also, I can't imagine the anxiety of that like that uh, when it comes to like pooping yeah <laughs> like yeah. prison prison changed me when I first Shoot. met my wife Noelle mm-hmm. um, we hadn't been dating like more than a week mm-hmm. or two 
And like I'm at, I remember I'm at her apartment. Yeah. I gotta, I gotta go to the bathroom. I don't close the door. You know, I'm just in there. I'm taking a dump. Like she's like, is he pooping right now with the door open? I'm like, I'm just not used to having closed spaces because I met her like three months after getting out. You know, oh, wow. so like I was like still kind of unwinding a little bit. Yeah. Um, but no, this is like normal. Like, and it's funny because like if you think about it, um, like you have the intimate stuff like that. Like you're in a cell with somebody. Yeah. Right. But then there's like the out in the open stuff. Like, let's say you go to yard. Mm-hmm. I go to yard. It's not like you can go back to your cell to go to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. You're on the yard. You're stuck there for whatever, two hours, three hours, whatever it is. You got to bring, you bring your roll of toilet paper with this you. This is horrific. This is, this is Hold on. You bring horrific. your roll of toilet, you got to bring a roll of toilet paper with you everywhere you go. I still do that. Like, I have rolls of toilet paper in the back of my car because you never know when you're going to need it. You know, like, I just. No, ca- it's, it's, that's very I carry true. it with me, but it's actually because of prison. Just like in prison, I always carry like a spoon with me. Right? You need a spoon, you need a fork, you need toilet paper wherever you go. And a cup, plastic well, cup. You I never know. It's like teaching you, to, like, maybe it taught you just survival mechanism stuff. Like, sure, like basic, like, bring everything with yeah, you. Yeah, so like, you're not just uncomfortable in any situation. Yeah. Uh, but back to the yard thing. So, like, you bring your toilet paper with you to the yard. Now, you just got to imagine, like, you got 20 stainless steel toilets in a row, completely out in the open, right? Like, there's no, like, little stall doors between them. Like, there's no, like, you know, like pull a curtain. Like if you got to go, you're pooping in front of 500 people. <laughs> like that, that's, that's just how it is. Right. And like, so you get, no, you, you get used to this. Like, so like there'll be like a holding cell to go to medical, right? Like, so yeah. you got to go to the doctor. There's a toilet in the holding cell to go to medical. You're in there with 20 other guys. You got to go. You got to go. So like that, this is where like certain etiquette comes in. Yeah. Right. Like that uh, becomes important. So like courtesy flushing. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we, we don't really have courtesy flushing out here in the same way. Like usually the courtesy flushing on the streets is like, like say someone you know is in the shower and you got to go to the bathroom and you know if you flush it, it's going to get really hot or get yeah. really cold. You're like, I'm going to flush the toilet. Watch it. You know, like that's like the idea. That's the same idea, but in prison it's different. It's both that, not so often because you're not usually pooping next door you're showering. Your yeah. pooping is in the cell. The showering is like somewhere else. That's that's also a public affair as well. Yeah. But like more more like... You're trying to spare the person next to you from having to smell. Yeah. Or hear yourself, you pooping. We all yeah. know we make noises, right? Nobody yeah. wants to hear us make noises. Yeah. So flushing in prison actually becomes like an affair where you're synchronizing it with... Any sound you're making. Any sound you're making. So it's kind of like... So nobody has to hear it. And then the, the other idea is, is like it's supposed to suck the smell down with it. Because prison toilets are basically like really high-powered Dysons, right? Yeah. They're like... like they really like blow... Air. Oh, well, that really helps with the sound thing. Then. Right. So the sound and the odor aspect. So the idea is, is like, that's prison etiquette, right? Yeah. So I got a story for you. Like, it's actually, it's really funny. Like, this isn't when I was in Folsom. This is when I'm, when I get to fire camp, um, which we can talk about in a bit. But like, I'm in fire camp. So it's like a more minimum security camp. Like, mm-hmm. I'm, there's no walls. There's nothing like that. And like, the water's like, the water in that camp is fed off. Like, uh, this is actually in Santa Clarita, California. Mm-hmm. So there's like like a water tank up on a hill that feeds like a percolation pond that then gets cycled into it's where the, how the toilets run mm-hmm. for whatever reason, the water source supply had gotten cut off uh-huh. from the water tank up on the mountain. So we had no running water. We got like 90 guys sharing like eight toilets. Everybody poops at the same time. Cause they're all going to work at seven 30. Yeah. So we all go to chow. It's like six 30. We go to chow. They drink their coffee. Everybody has to get, this is basically like simultaneous, like doing your business. Cause you're getting ready to go to work. So like everybody like they, well, there's as a long line. As everyone's doing it at the same time though, then it's not that awkward. Well, no, everybody's doing it at the same time, but when the water's out, you don't have the ability oh. to like flush. flush. Yeah. So like this is like this really odd so odd, like awkward social moment in prison, like because like what do we do? What do we do? So what do you think somebody did? First of all, like you have to imagine that we have these buckets. We have these five gallon buckets, mm-hmm. and so there's pe- there's a chain of people like taking five gallon buckets down to the percolation pond, bringing water up back and forth to the bathroom mm-hmm. to give to people on the toilet so they can pour the water into the toilet to flush because, you know, like, toilets are automatic like that. So that's all happening. Imagine this chain of people with five-gallon buckets from a percolation pond mm-hmm. up to the bathroom just so we can flush the toilets. But what you have to also imagine is every time somebody's getting ready to drop one, they're screaming. So they're like, you know, like, they don't want anybody to hear it. And we're so used to not hearing having people hear it. So it's like someone's on the toilet and it's like, ah! And then someone's on the toilet, ah! Like everybody's screaming. It's like this really, really bad kind of like choir of like of like people like singing while they shit because no, they didn't want anybody to hear the sounds they're making. Like and like this is something I think that's only like possible in prison, right? Like yeah, we go to the bathroom publicly 
and like, yeah, I don't like it when I make a sound if there's somebody next to me, but yeah. like, if you have to, you let it go. But yeah. you would never hear me singing it. Well, you're like not, really loud. Well, I you're making, it. but but you guys are out in the yacht. Like this is in the in this particular instance with the singing. Like yeah. this is like actually in a closed room, maybe as big as this room with like. But there are there partitions? No, there's no partitions. Are they just trying to publicly shame you in prison? There's no, Jesus. Well, I mean, this is prison. There's no privacy. Yeah. Like even when we're in our cell, and oh, I talk about. Oh, I guess about, that's true. They just don't want to know what you're doing. <laughs> like in the, yeah. Yeah, like even when we're in our cell, and we were like, when I said we'd have to like drop the sheet, mm-hmm. like technically that's illegal. Yeah. Technically, most cops don't enforce it because they yeah. don't want to watch you doing it anymore. Then yeah. you want them to see you doing it. But technically speaking, like covering any part of the cell with a sheet is is against the rule. Yeah. Right. So a lot of the time, just to keep cops out of your cell, you'll roll your cover sheets up uh-huh. and kind of like stuff them underneath like the mattress. And then you just roll them down when you need them. Yeah. But uh, yeah, like kind of like there's like weird like. That's 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 not. I mean, showering's the same way. It's like totally out in the open. Um, other weird like cultural thing. I mean, you, you, every time you go to work on the way back, you got to get stripped out. Mm hmm. You know, so you go to work or you go to a visit, same way. Mm-hmm. Visit is like stripped in, stripped out on the way into the visit, stripped out mm-hmm. on the way out of the visit. But going to work is the same way. They want to make sure you're not like stealing tools or knives or whatever. They think you're shoving up your prison wallet. And, like, <laughs> and uh, you know, like, so like you get, you just get used to getting stripped search. You get yeah. used to like kind of those dehumanizing things. Um, you get used to like all this, like for lack of a better word, the things that we hide from people. Mm-hmm where you become really accustomed to sharing with people to the extent that they just don't bother you anymore. Yeah. And so, like, I had to learn to, like, get re-bothered by this stuff when I got out. Like, I had to learn to, like, oh, there's boundaries around this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah this is different like, now. I, I yeah, should but you do spent... the courtesy of closing the door to the bathroom when I do this. Yeah. You, you know? But you spent so much time, like, that your brain probably changes from, like, caring. that's what, yeah. Well, um, you don't want to feel traumatized every time you go to a visit. Yeah. You don't, I mean... You don't want to feel completely embarrassed and demeaned and humiliated every time you go to the bathroom. Yeah. So yeah. you learn to adapt to it. It becomes it becomes normalized for yeah. you. Yeah. You know. You entered a, a a drug rehabilitation program in prison, right? I or, did not. No, you did not. I thought they had those sort of things there. They did, but um, I didn't do. Um, I mean, I think I participated in some while I was in the county jail briefly, mm-hmm. but it was more just a way of passing my time. Like it was like I was interested in it, but yeah. Like what I would actually started doing was just like, you know, 12 step stuff, okay. like um, meditation groups, things like that. Basically stuff where like free people for like free is in like, you know, free staff, people from the free world would come in like as volunteers. I'm such you a know. moron and not in that. I was like, oh, the brand free people. I love that clothing. Brand. It is a brand, isn't it? <laughs> so like, no, like, uh, so like, yeah, free people would come in and like, you know, teach meditation. They'd run groups and mm-hmm. things like that for you. And like, so like I was doing stuff like that. Um, so taking advantage of like volunteer programs and then, um, you know, during the day, like I worked, I worked in a welding shop, I worked as a landscaper and eventually like, do they pay you when you work in prison? Uh, or do you just do yes. For... Well, the ones behind the walls are very, well, it's minimal. Yeah. Right? I think when I was a landscaper, I made seven cents an hour, six cents an hour, something like that. Oh, and then go. I owed 50% restitution and you worked a six and a half hour day. So I get like 36 cents and then I get taxed like 60% of it. So I'd make like, Oh, they really, they really punish you. Okay. So I made like 11 cents a day. So like every other day I could get a top ramen noodle, which were 20 cents at the canteen. So I could get top ramen that way. Granted, like I actually had family who was like super supportive and loving and caring yeah. and like sent me money uh, periodically to basically make it so I didn't starve to death because they don't exactly feed you well. Mm-hmm. in prison i mean i have a type of metabolism where if I, I don't constantly eat like i'm starting to get lightheaded like i'm hypoglycemic or something yeah. uh but the point is like i that, had that's this one right here yeah yeah like that's that's why like i call them fruit fits sometimes like at night like i'll just need calories somehow yeah. <laughs> like i don't care what it is like give me fruit juice give me something i'm jealous um, i have no metabolism so whatsoever yeah so you don't have to eat i don't have a thyroid gland oh wonderful <laughs> um but yeah like uh then I got, but eventually, like, I, after I was left Folsom, after I left Jamestown, like, I was in, like, kind of, like, the high security prison for a number of years, and then I mm-hmm. went to the fire camp, and they pay you better there. Mm-hmm. Um, and for those who don't know, like, a fire camp is where um, California prisoners go to basically fight wildfires. And so I spent the last three years in prison, like, in a fire camp in Santa Clarita. That's where they, the fantastic... So uh, were you always... Uh, you never were back in a, uh, the prison? You were actually like a, at a... Yeah. One, once I left 
for fire camp. Mm. I was not behind uh, a prison wall ever again, except I think on one occasion I had to go to medical, and there's no medical facility, so they mm. drive you back to the, clo- the closest prison, yeah. take you to medical, and they drive you back. But that's that's pretty great that you didn't. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of criticism of fire camps these days. You know, we got all the wildfires and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. They, they get a lot of criticism because even though they're the highest paid jobs for prisoners in the state of California, they're still underpaid. And so mm-hmm. there's a lot of discussion about like prison slavery and things mm-hmm. like that. I'm not sure I can really completely agree with that, but that's a totally different like mm-hmm. kind of political conversation. But for me, like it was like a super awesome, like fulfilling experience. Yeah. Um, I was out in nature. I went hiking every morning, like. I was doing something that was like I think beneficial for the community for mm-hmm. um it just felt like a worthwhile thing mm-hmm. you know like I remember we went up to Santa Barbara and we fought the uh, the Hesacita fire in Santa Barbara in 2009 and I just it was my first big fire I fought and like we were actually fighting fires in like the neighborhoods where um like fire was coming down into like people's houses and some of the houses were burning down and there was this one house I remember that was where the deck had burned mm-hmm. it was on fire and so, like, if we let it be, then the deck would have lit the house on fire. So oh, we wow. took our chainsaws and we cut the deck off the house. Ooh, smart. So we cut the deck off the house and moved it away. And I always just, like, thought, like, these people, like, they're going to drive in their neighborhood. There's, like, house burned down, house burned down. And they, like, see their house. They're like, holy cow, our house is still here. And imagine they, like, they go in, they look through their living room, but our deck is gone. But they're like, they see how close it got. Yeah. You know? And they never know that it was prisoners that did it. Um, yeah, and I'll never forget cool. like driving out of like Santa Barbara after we fought that fire and there's like people on the side of the road and there's like these thank you signs and it's just thank you firefighters mm-hmm. it's not like thank you prisoners specifically but it just felt good um, you know being where I was in mm-hmm. life to like feel like included in that yeah um, however small it was you know yeah. like, there's a certain element I mean it's like really easy to assimilate like you go everywhere you go it says cdcr prisoner mm-hmm. your pants says cdr it's everything everything you time you look in the mirror mm-hmm. every time you talk to a guard i'm reminded of what i am mm-hmm. i'm a prisoner and like there's a certain element of like you just really start to assimilate that you know yeah. and so to do that firefighter thing was awesome it gave you like a purpose of something different that you could it do it felt like you were a prisoner and a firefighter yeah does that make sense? Yeah. Like there's this element of like, yeah. and I'm fighting fires. Yeah. And there's people thanking me and there's people appreciating me who would otherwise have not appreciated yeah. me. Um, and so in that sense, it's like a really awesome, yeah. awesome program. Not to mention visiting is like super cool there. That's cool. Like your family brings like a picnic basket and you barbecue. And so it's not like a prison visit behind the glass. Like it's, 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 a, it's a great place so to it's be. It's like close to real life ish well not i wouldn't really. go so that, okay. that that far it's not quite real yeah, life. Yeah. look as far as the best way to characterize it it's the most humane place to live in the entire prison system mm-hmm. um so like yeah i think most people if they live in prison if they had the opportunity would love to go there mm-hmm. a lot of people aren't eligible because i think violent uh people with violent crime convictions can't go and things like that but for those who do go i think they appreciate it a lot yeah so okay so and that's where i paroled from yeah and then and then you so just like describe your life now. Like you, you got your, you've been sober how many years now? Oh man. It's funny. You stop, start not keeping as much track as time yeah. goes on. I think, um, it was a 2019. So it's been, I guess I'm coming up on 15 years. Yeah. Maybe. And no other arrests and you, no, you, you no you, more arrests. Yeah. And you, you have a great job. You got married. You, the, yeah, I got out and, um, obviously I was on parole for a couple of years, but, um, Somehow I managed to commute and go to Berkeley from mm-hmm. the South Bay um, while I was on parole. I actually had a parole agent who worked with me mm-hmm. um, and made that made that possible. Um, all because of college I did when I was in prison. And then um, I actually had a hell of a time trying to find work after graduating uh, from college, even though, you know, it was a great university and what have you. I mm-hmm. just, uh, the felonies, uh, they make it tough. Yeah. They make it tough. And it's my own fault imagine. as far as, you know, the, what I did. But... Um, you know, they are forever. And yeah. so, like, there is just a lot of places that I had a really difficult time, even though I was qualified. Mm-hmm. Um, had a difficult time finding work. And so, eventually, I got into the trades and uh, became a union electrician, and I make great pay. And um, I really haven't looked back since. You know, like, they, it's like the, the trade gives me the ability to do all that other fun stuff I like to do, which mm-hmm. is like photography or traveling the world. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, we're getting ready to, you know, buy a house here um, in the next couple of months. So, things that I really wouldn't have imagined you know, were possible like 10 years ago. I mean, mm-hmm. 10 years ago, I moved from basically from prison, prison to mm-hmm. fire camp, 
you know, and if you'd told me like 10 years from now, you're going to be married, you're going to be buying a house, you're going to be having traveled all over Asia and like stayed in monasteries as like a monk and like, so doing, cool. like doing all this like crazy stuff, just like it's actually graduated from Berkeley, like all that stuff. Like I just never would have thought it was possible. I think um, that's like a, a good, like kind of like a good lesson for like any of my listeners or anyone like you, like you never know what good things can happen, you know, like you never know what good things are happening. And I think like, if there's another thing like to take a, take away from me thinking about my own life in like mm-hmm. a narrative fashion like that is like you never know wh- what the bad things that happen are going to transform themselves into. Yeah. Like I think that's dude, prison wonder- prison wonderful. sucks. Mm-hmm. Um but I wouldn't want to trade that path for anything. Yeah. You know, like um you know, like it's damaged me in a little way. Mm-hmm. You know, like I still you know, like I, I had to go to therapy for a couple of years because mm-hmm. of, you know, survival strategies. Uh, oh, I kind can of imagine like a, that would be very damaging. Yeah. yeah, you know, and I really didn't want to accept that for a long time. Yeah. I really didn't want to accept the fact that being put in a cage um, would be traumatic because there's an element of like, I put myself up here, put myself here. I need yeah. to pull myself up by, the, by my bootstraps type attitude. Um, but it took me a couple of years to realize like that may be the case, but... Uh, there's still work to be done and yeah. so like I like the whole slogan it might some things might not be my fault but it's still my responsibility and so mm-hmm. like um, yeah I wouldn't want to change anything other than maybe the amount of harm I've caused others yeah you know um, along the way yeah well you you're an incredibly interesting intelligent and kind person I, I really like you and you've been so wonderful to us coming here and yeah, I thank you so much for doing the podcast. And absolutely, it's been fun. Tell uh, tell everyone where they can like your website and your you know because you you do your writing st- on there. Yeah, that. I've got a blog that um, you can read some of my stories, um, some of the ones we talked about today, mm-hmm. and some that we didn't talk about today. The website is Han Scratch, mm-hmm. so that's my last name H A H N Scratch S C R A T C H, and that's the same thing for my social media. So Instagram, Twitter, Han Scratch at Han Scratch. Um, I've been posting a ton lately, though I'm sure I'll post this podcast mostly because yeah. I'm in the kind of like in the process of just finally putting the book together, and so I'm trying not to I'm cheat, cheat the book by putting stuff on the website. But there's lots of stories that are up, maybe yeah, fifteen when or do you, twenty. When stories. do you think your book will come out? Or I don't know when it'll come out, but my personal deadline is Christmas next year. So, okay. um, God, that's going to be a good read. It's a hard, <laughs> it's hard to do when you're working full time and going to school full time and all oh, this yeah. other stuff as I've been trying to get it done, but, uh, it's a commitment I've set for myself here. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Congratulate me when it's done. Man. All right. Fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. Well, thank you for doing this. Hey, you're welcome. Thank you.